Hey Crossings podcast community. This teaching is called Think Again About the Other and is the fourth teaching in our Think Again series. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on May 9th, 2021. Thanks for listening. So a while ago, there was this commercial that ran on ESPN and you may have seen it, you may remember this. Uh, And I'm gonna try to avoid going into too much detail to avoid traumatizing anyone. But the, the commercial begins with this young couple sitting on a couch, kissing. And they're caressing each other and they're saying all these things that you say to someone when you're newly in love about how soft their lips are and how much they love them so much. And as the camera begins to pan out, we see that the man in the, in the commercial is wearing a blue Michigan shirt while the woman is wearing this red Ohio State shirt. And as we continue to watch them fawn over each other, the caption appears below the screen that says, without sports, this wouldn't be disgusting. And it's a brilliant commercial because the idea that where you went to college or what football team you cheer for could limit the person you're allowed to fall in love with may seem silly to some of us, but some of you probably know someone who is such a diehard University of Tennessee fan that they couldn't fathom being close to or caring about someone who cheers for the Florida Gators. Maybe you're that person, I don't know. But in Adam Grant's book, Think Again, which is where this series that we're currently in gets its name, he actually investigates what it would take for someone to rethink their sports rivalry. And so he tests this with two diehard fan organizations with the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox baseball teams. And in the study, they asked Yankees and Red Sox fans how much money it would take for them to taunt their own team and how much it would take for them to cheer for their rival. And so the average Red Sox fan, according to this study, would need an average, an average of $503 to disparage their own team, but it would take $560 to cheer for their rivals, the Yankees. Significantly more money. When asked to list three negative things about their opposing rivals, Yankees and Red Sox fans used almost the same identical language. They were obnoxious, arrogant, rude, loud, annoying, dumb, all of the things that you might expect someone to say about someone they didn't like. Some of them made fun of the other fans' beards, and one fan said that they smelled like old corn chips. I don't know really how you would get close enough to your rival to know that, but it's just an interesting comment. Grant writes in his book, if you despise a particular sports team and its fans, you're harboring some strong opinions about a group of people. Those beliefs are stereotypes and they often spill over into prejudice. The stronger your attitudes become, the less likely you are to rethink them. He goes on to say, rivalries aren't unique to sports. A rivalry exists whenever we reserve special animosity for a group we see as competing with us for resources or threatening our identities. As stereotypes stick and prejudice deepens, we don't just identify with our own group, 
we disidentify with our adversaries, coming to define who we are by what we're not. So the question that Grant asks is the question that I would like for us to consider today. How do we disrupt, unlearn, and rethink the stereotypes that we inherit? How do we do that? So three weeks ago, we started this series called Think Again. And the idea is that we examine different parts of our thinking, our habits, our beliefs, to make sure that we are living up to the reality that God is calling us toward. In a sense, we've been framing the question like this. We've been saying, if the resurrection is about a completely different way of being and thinking, there's a good chance that many of our current practices stand in the way of us accomplishing that way of living. And so far, we've talked about this concept of identity, who we are, and rethinking that along the, the lines of our values as opposed to our opinions. We've looked at spiritual formation and trying to reframe that as a journey towards mastery, this never-ending quest towards a horizon, as opposed to some kind of success or arrival that we achieve. And last week, Mark talked about this process of changing someone's mind, reframing this whole concept of evangelism or trying to win a debate and shifting towards listening and being curious. And so what I would like for us to consider today is rethinking how we talk about how we act towards the other, the ones that we stereotype, those who are considered to be rivals to the status quo, those that we label, that we exclude, that we define ourselves against. So consider that if living like this, this, this way of stereotyping, this way of othering people could be the thing that's keeping us from what we call shalom, the way it was intended to be. And so to do that this, this afternoon, this morning, wherever you are, we're going to enter into one of my favorite books in the, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth. Because I believe with all my heart that the book of Ruth is in the Bible specifically to get us to rethink how we categorize others. Let me explain. Ruth begins, the whole book begins with the phrase, in the days the judges ruled. And we could spend an entire gathering talking about those six words. That would be the book of Judges, the entire book. We could unpack all of that. And we've actually done that before in this community. But today we just need to know that this phrase is a code for a time in Israel's past when things were not the way they were intended to be. In the days the judges ruled, is equivalent to the wild, wild west. One part of the book says everything, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's this downward spiral of chaos, this time where no one really knows who's in charge. And so everything that happens in the book of Ruth is taking place within this chaotic context, this wilderness. And so the story opens up on this Israelite family from the tribe of Judah living in the town of Bethlehem. Ruth begins this way. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. And they went to Moab and lived there. 
Now, I think some of the names of the people in this story are actually very important. So this story is about a family, and the patriarch of this family is a man named Elimelech, whose name means, my God is king in Hebrew. Very important to understand the name. His wife, Naomi, means pleasant or lovely, but their children's names, Mahlon, means weak or weakly, and Kilion means sickly, okay? So you can kind of see where this might be going. The family moves next door to Israel in this place called Moab because of a famine. Now, what's really interesting about this is that the guy whose name is my God is king doesn't seem to believe that God, Yahweh, can support his family in a time of famine. Interesting that the book of Ruth would have this character named my God is king behaving in a way that doesn't believe that God is king. I think the author is having fun here. They go to this place of refuge, Moab, and this place has a very complicated history in the story of Israel. And I think the people listening to this book would have picked up on that and sneered and made a face because of where these people are heading. There is no doubt in my mind that the author expects the Israelites listening to this story to conjure up stereotypes about Moab. So some of these that are actually in the biblical text the first begins with Genesis 19, this story where we're told about this destruction of these two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's nephew in this story, Lot, and his daughters are living in this area, and they're told to evacuate because God is going to destroy these cities. And they narrowly escape, and they end up in a cave not far away. And it's in this cave that Lot's daughters get him drunk, and sleep with him because they're afraid that the family line will end if they don't. They're afraid that the end of the world has come, and if they don't act, their line will perish. That's the first story that all Israelites would probably conjure up at this time about Moab. The story of Genesis says, Thus both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and named him Moab. He is the ancestor of the Moabites to this day. So the Moabites are basically a punchline to an ancient joke about a people being from a certain place born of incest. We all have those jokes today. You've probably heard them. I don't want to repeat them. But this isn't the only anti-Moabite story in the Bible. After the Exodus, when Israel is liberated from Egypt... While they're wandering around in the desert, we get this story in Numbers chapter 25. While Israel was staying in Shittim, got to be careful with that one, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So in this story, again, we have another story one about how the Moabites are people born of incest, another about how dangerous these people are and how they could possibly lead Israel astray. And then we come to the kicker in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23, starting in verse three says, no Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted into the assembly of the Lord, 
even to the 10th generation, none of their descendants shall be admitted into the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet you with food and water on your journey out of Egypt. And then in verse six, it says, you shall never promote their welfare or their prosperity as long as you live. So the stereotypes that we have about Moabites already are that Moabites are inbred, Moabites are dangerous idol worshipers, and Moabites are inhospitable. And so if you're an Israelite listening to this story in the book of Ruth, these are the dominant images that are being conjured up for you. And this command in Deuteronomy 26 says it all. Because of the, who the Moabites have been in the past, you shall never promote their welfare. And, and that word welfare, <laughs> it's the Hebrew word shalom. It's this word that we use all the time in this community to talk about this peace and this wholeness and this restoration that we're all looking for. And so because of who Moab, Moabites have been in the past, the book of Deuteronomy says, you are forbidden to seek the shalom of Moab. And now in the book of Ruth, that's exactly where this family of Israelites are heading. And while this family is there, the sons, Machlon, Kilion, they marry Moabite women. And then all the men die. Elimelech, my God is king, is dead. And honestly, though, if your sons are named weakling and sickly, you kind of like, what did you expect for them to make it through a famine? I don't know. But that's not the point. At this point in the story, it's Naomi hears that the famine in Israel is over. They've been there for 10 years and it, she decides it's time to go home. She tells her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, that they are free to stay in Moab and find husbands there. And Orpah, totally within her rights, decides to stay in Moab, but not Ruth. In chapter one, verse 15, Ruth says, or Naomi says, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord Yahweh deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So this is such a powerful scene to me. Something about this relationship between Naomi and Ruth had changed over the last 10 years. Something made Ruth eager to go with her. I know many of you may not be able to say that about your in-laws, but, but something made her curious enough about Naomi to want to follow her, made her curious about this Yahweh that she served. And so she enters a land, Israel, forbidden to seek her shalom, seeking the shalom of an Israelite that she has come to love. And unfortunately, we just don't have enough time to dive into the entire book to, to unpack all of the story. But basically, this is what happens next in the story when Ruth and Naomi arrive in Israel. It's the time of harvest, this time of bringing in all of the produce. 
And the Israelite custom at this time is to leave the gleanings, the leftovers from what the harvesters leave behind, what's fallen on the ground, to leave this stuff to the widows, to the orphans, to the oppressed of society. And so it just so happens that when Ruth picks the field that she does, it is owned by a man named Boaz, who is a man related to Naomi's deceased husband. And so according to Israelite custom, someone, uh, Boaz is someone who could make everything right for Naomi and Ruth. He can pay for the ancestral land for Naomi to live on. He can provide Elimelech's family a generation by marrying Ruth and continuing the family line. And it turns out that this Boaz is a pretty good guy. He falls in love with Ruth. And it's an interesting story. We don't have time, but if you want to talk about it later, just let me know because it's a fascinating story. But there's one problem with the idea of Boaz marrying Ruth. There is another person in town who could technically, legally, do all of the things that would fix this situation, but it wouldn't involve Boaz and Ruth getting married, okay? It's very complicated, but this relationship between Ruth and Boaz and Naomi is actually in jeopardy in the story. And so what Boaz does is he goes to the city gate, the place where everything in the social world happens at this time, and he meets with this next of kin who stands in the way of him marrying Ruth and providing for Naomi. And he tells them about this great piece of land that this family member could acquire. But then he says this. Then Boaz says, The day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also acquiring Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. And at this, the next of kin said, I cannot redeem the land for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this whole thing about marrying someone's dead, dead you know, husband and establishing children for them, I know that's weird. It's a different time. But the book of Ruth is full of occasions when the actors in the story are willing to bend the rules to do the right thing, to pursue shalom. Like in this story, how Boaz connects two unrelated laws concerning property and marriage to dissuade his relative from marrying Ruth. It's a little gray area. <laughs> how, how they forgo this humiliating ritual to shame the man for not fulfilling his duty to the family by marrying Ruth. They completely get rid of it. No one remembered these laws, maybe. Maybe the story was written when things had changed. We, we don't really know. But what I think the author of Ruth is doing is something different. I think the book of Ruth exists within this spectrum of a conversation about who can and who can't be a part of Israel. I think the book of Ruth is written to break the stereotype about what it meant to be a Moabite. I think it's about revealing how kind of arbitrary some of our categories of rivals and enemies and the other really are. And the book of Ruth really, at the end of the day, just wants us to know that God's story bends towards dissolving arbitrary animosity through radical inclusion. I think that is what Ruth is all about, this radical inclusion. 
One commentator on Ruth, uh, a man by the name of Andre Lecoq says, the book of Ruth is a vibrant plea for adopting a consciousness moved by expansive love rather than by restrictive legal definitions. The story of Ruth is all about making Israel see the other differently by moving in closer and tearing down dividing walls. The story of Ruth is more important than the legal definition of what a Moabite was. And so the book of Ruth kind of concludes this way in Ruth 4:13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when they came together, the Lord made her conceive and she bore a son. So what I think is really interesting about this particular verse is that for the first time in the story, really, God is explicitly named as acting. For the first three chapters of this entire story, all of these human beings are running around in this chaos, trying to pursue shalom, trying to do the right thing, defying laws about including a Moabite. But only in the end, after their efforts, does God bless the struggle. The story of Ruth begins with a woman whose family tree goes back to Lot, incest. Her story is of the supposed idolatrous, inhospitable Moabite people, the people for whom Israel was forbidden to seek shalom. And the idea behind this whole commandment in Deuteronomy was that the people of Moab were so dysfunctional that there was no good that could come from being in relationship with them. And, and this law, this extreme boundary that's set up in Deuteronomy, I think was there to protect Israel. I, I think maybe there is a time where someone could become toxic and you need to cut something off for a time to, to grow, to be whole. But, but I think this, this command in Deuteronomy might go too far. I think the book of Ruth is suggesting that this law has gone too far that the gravity of the legal definition was misguided. And so the book of Ruth challenges this law. It's in the book of Ruth that one marginalized, stereotyped, othered person has dared to insist upon full participation. And the result is that Israel reached out beyond the societal norms to include her. Redemption Shalom is available in this story to anyone who desires to seek it out, to let love dominate fear and control. And, and so going back to these sports rivalries, uh, Grant and his study found that the only way to get a Yankees and a Red Sox fan to change their mind about the other was by getting them to think about the arbitrariness of the rivalry itself and their places in it. So just imagine if you're a Yankees fan, what if you were born in Boston? You'd just as likely be as ardent a Red Sox fan. And so what Grant got these people to reconsider is that their fandom was really just a fluke of birth. So why, why would they base their identity on it? Why would they base who they included in their friend group on it? Why create a category that stereotypes an entire people group based on something as random as the city you were born in? And at the end, that's what made the difference. 
this counterfactual thinking, considering the alternative. Because when you put yourself in someone else's shoes, it's a lot harder to judge, exclude, or hate that person because it's a lot closer. I think the book of Ruth exists in our Bibles as a giant counterfactual example of why exclusionary thinking is misguided. Why the boxes we put people in just don't work. Because when we actually get to know a Moabite, an other, a human being looking for shalom, to quote Brene Brown, it's just a lot harder to hate up close. And so it's in our best interest to include, to have the fullest expression of God's image in our community. Because by seeking the shalom of all people, it turns out that's the only way we get this redemption. The book of Ruth ends this way after the inclusion of Ruth the Moabite. The women of the neighborhood gave Ruth's son a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi and they named the son Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. So without the inclusion of Ruth, <laughs> Without this disruption of the stereotype, without realizing the arbitrariness of the rivalry between Israel and Moab, we don't get King David, perhaps one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. And even further than that, if you read the book of Matthew in the opening chapter, there's a genealogy, this family tree of Jesus, and included amongst the women in this genealogy is Ruth is King David. And so without this inclusion, we don't get Jesus either. I mean, imagine what would have happened if Boaz and the other Israelites had refused to seek the shalom of Ruth because she was a Moabite. How disastrous would that have been for the whole history of the Bible for us? Sean Ridge and Heather Gorman, uh, two people in our community, uh, they shared something with me this week is a handout that they created about hospitality, what it means to welcome and include someone. And in this document were a couple of questions that absolutely blew me away um, in considering this question about other people, the people that we stereotype and exclude. And I want to share with you some of these questions, some things for us to think through as we consider what it means to rethink how we generate these stereotypes of the other. They say, who are your people? Who, who are the people that you can trust and who you share your worldview? Think about that group of people that you, don't, you move in and out with relative ease. They share your thoughts. Now think about who the people are who would not feel welcomed in your group. At best, okay, these people would feel awkward. At worst, they would feel judged and rejected. Who are those people? Who are those people that would not feel a hospitable welcome in your group? And then finally they ask, are you willing to receive these others while allowing them to be different? Would you be willing to develop deep friendships and even common purpose with them? Would you be willing to forego the stereotypes, to forego the categories, of, of these things that society puts on us and include them in community 
Include them in the purpose. Seek shalom with them and for them. I think that's the question we should be asking at this point in our world. And these are the questions at the heart of Ruth. These are great think again questions. What other people do you need to rethink your relationship with, your categorization of? Democrat, Republican, racial groups, LGBTQ, gender stereotypes, status symbols, the family that you're born into. I mean, there, there are endless lists that we could come up with. But who is the other that would not feel welcome in your group? And what would it take for you to rethink that relationship? What would it take for you to accept their difference and include them and pursue their shalom? Grant says this in the book. He says, those with the greater power, it's those with the, the greater power who need to do more of the rethinking both because they're more likely to privilege their own perspectives and because their perspectives are more likely to go unquestioned. It's, it's those of us who have the power in society, who, who have this great privilege that have to do the hard work of rethinking because we're more likely to go unchecked. We're more likely to not be told that we have to do something. And so the sooner we start rethinking these positions, these, these stereotypes of the other, the more likely we are, I think, to embrace this resurrection way of Jesus that brings dead things back to life, that brings about something completely new, that restores the broken shalom in this world and, and in us. Would you pray with me? God, as we put ourselves in this story as we reconsider this, this new thing you are doing among us through this new life in Jesus that, that we're all called to, this participation in the putting back together of all things, the renewal of all things. Would you renew in us the way that we categorize and exclude people who have been made in your image, the way that we box in people who bear your image. Would you give us the space to confess and lament our participation in this exercise that is not born of the way that it was intended to be, but is used to divide and exclude. And may we become people as we are formed more and more and more in this way of Jesus, this resurrection way. May we set aside those divisions. May we include those and seek the shalom of all people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at this point, we typically do something every week um, where we take a piece of bread and we take some juice that are the body and blood of Jesus. Um, we call it common meal. It's been called the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion. It goes by a lot of different names. Uh, but early on in the church's history, there was a group of people that Paul, this guy who wrote a lot of letters in the New Testament, uh, was concerned about for this church in Corinth. 
And we get a little bit of this letter, um, particularly about this time of eating the Lord's Supper, eating common meal. And it's in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. And Paul's particularly concerned about these dividing lines that are showing up when the community comes together to eat this meal where they remember Jesus. And he's really upset because the rich people in the community are leaving out the poor people who are coming in from work and they're showing up to the meal and there's nothing left to eat. It's these people who are exercising their privilege blindly without considering the people in the body of Christ, their community, who don't have the same privileges as them. And so Paul says this at some point in this letter, um, in chapter 11, he says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. These, these uh, representations, these embodiments of Jesus's blood and body that, that were shed. He says, for whoever eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, the community, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, I remember hearing that at like a common meal, a Lord's Supper, whenever I was a kid. And what I took it to mean, and what I think the people actually intended for it to be was that I needed to reflect on all the sins that I had committed that week. Like I needed to go through a mental checklist of everything bad that I had done so that I wouldn't be condemned by God in taking the Lord's Supper. All right. I just want to say that I don't think that that's what Paul's talking about here. Actually, in the context of these divisions among the community, these exercisings of power over people who don't have it, these otherings of people in the body of Christ, I think what Paul is talking about here is that we're supposed to use common meal as a rethinking exercise. That this is a time in our liturgy, the way that we gather, the way that we, we meet God, to think about the ways that we fail to see the image of God in someone else. To think about the ways that we create these exclusionary lines, both inside the church and our community, and also in the greater world. Are we guilty of participating in this enterprise of dividing up the world into groups and categories? Or are we willing to bend towards the love of God that is about breaking down those walls, about including and seeking the shalom of all people. So as we drink this cup, as we eat this bread, as we participate in this meal, I think it's important to take some time as we sing the next song, or maybe just pause this video and think about how do I participate in these ways of stereotyping, in these ways of othering? And how does the love of God, how does the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus call me to something higher and greater. Whenever you're ready as this next song plays, or if you want to pause this video, we encourage you to take common meal in this spirit. If you have any questions about this teaching or are looking at different ways to engage in community at Crossings, you can reach out to us at administration at crossingsknoxville.com. If there's anything we can do to take care of you as you're listening from a distance, please let us know. Shalom.